You're listening to the You're Smarter Than Us podcast, Asheville's premier soccer podcast. Guys, welcome back to another episode of You're Smarter Than Us. I'm extremely excited to welcome Riley Maletsky to the pod. How are you, Riley? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. Well, thanks for hopping on with us. I'm excited. I think this is one of the first times I've really been able to reach out to somebody and explore the NPL NPSL Southeast kind of before the season as opposed to in the middle of the season. So I'm really excited to explore all the changes and consistencies. <laughs> Lower league soccer is always in a state of flux. And um, I think if we're going to become better fans, we got to ask ourselves some uncomfortable questions sometimes. And I'm excited to explore those with you. But before we get too far into the Southeast, Riley, can you tell me a little bit about your connection to the Georgia Revolution and your Soccer Roundtable and Roots Up podcast that seem to have fallen off a little bit, but maybe it creates an opportunity for you to hop on with me a little more often. Yeah, so two years ago, Georgia Revolution moved from RISA, which was a youth soccer program similar to Emerald Force, I guess, kind of, and they had a similar partnership. And then they got bought out by the um, Morrison family and the Morrison family stayed in Rockdale County for one year. And then they moved to Henry County. When they moved to Henry County, I was always a diehard minor league baseball uh, fan, avid traveler, went to many minor league stadiums and was a big minor league fan. And living on the South side of Atlanta, there's, there's no minor league teams near us. They're all in Gwinnett or Rome or back down in Macon, Valdosta, Savannah area, so far away. And Atlanta United came into the area in that time also. So I was kind of diving into soccer, trying to figure out what the heck it was. And this minor league team reached out to me on Twitter. and was like, hey, we're here. We're in Henry County. We'd love for you to join us. So I went down to a match, fell in love with it, started uh, kind of just writing trying to get my hat in the realm in the writing world and blogging and some stuff for for the team and then that kind of grew into joined started a supporters group and last season i was doing play-by-play for george revolution and that kind of went hand in hand with i started a media outlet soccer roundtable to focus on lower division soccer and we had the soccer roundtable logo cup and a podcast, and that moved into, I worked with soccer down here and Jason Longshore and doing the uh, Roots Up podcast, focused on lower division soccer. And then I kind of took a break from Twitter, and I came back, and both of those just had a little bit less of a following than when I left them. And so lately, I've just been focusing on my personal Twitter account, and hopefully more opportunities come from that. You put up a great Twitter post the other day. It was like an entire thread of players who may have performed extremely well in the NPSL Southeast last year that have left the league. Did any of those stand out to you, um, and where did they go? Yeah, so one thing I noticed last season in Asheville, actually, Manny Perez, who is a right winger, he uh, was a freshman at NC State. And he had a fantastic year. Didn't get to spend much time with Asheville because he was actually playing for the U.S. Men's National Team U20. And so he, he didn't get a full season in Asheville. But when he did step on the pitch, he was very impressive. And he actually ended up signing with Celtics. That's probably your your biggest, hey, this is uh, it's kind of a big-time signing. You know, a guy going to a big-time European club with a lot of name recognition from the MPSL Southeast. That was pretty cool. And then there's a lot of guys that went to the USL, especially from Georgia Revolution, my team, um, that I'm a fan of. 
We had two guys going to Austin Bold FC, the new USL team in Austin. And one of those guys, one of the really cool things was he actually started playing soccer in the youth program in RISA for George Revolution, then moved all the way up to the reserve team last year. And then he um, got the chance and opportunity to play for the first team in George Revolution and the MPSL. And, and that got on the spot um, in USL. Um, and then one of the other cool stories is Alex Harley, who played for the Silverbacks for a long time with Eric Ronaldo. And then Eric Ronaldo, you know, went out and started Las Vegas Lights FC. And Alex Harley spent a year playing for the Revolution, led him to a playoff spot. And then Alex is going out and playing with Eric Ronaldo, the head coach of Las Vegas Lights. And he actually scored a goal against Toronto FC in the 5-1 win against the Major League Soccer side for Las Vegas Lights. He was um, part of that, uh, putting the banner up in the outfield there. That was uh, that was pretty cool. And they're actually, <laughs> I think they're playing Colorado sometime soon and trying to trying to continue to dominate MLS competition. And then one thing that always stood out to me was two Asheville City players signed with Greenville Triumph, the new USL League One team in Greenville. And then another guy, Aaron Walker from the Silverbacks, is going to join him. I, I just like to see how these guys are getting an opportunity to show show their talent, show their skills, and then move up to a new level. And I, I think this kind of showcases what the lower divisions and the grassroots are good for and how they are helping better the game. And, of course, you have other guys that I haven't mentioned yet that are going to Spain and Sweden and all other places across the globe to continue their professional aspirations. And I, I really think this shows the benefits of the grassroots system. There's certainly a synergy and a connective tissue between the lower leagues and the upper lower leagues i of course just wish that we could also figure out a way to do that in terms of the clubs but at least it exists for the players i really can't ever fault the players for basically having to deal with the system they've been handed and just making the best of it so a lot of those changes on the player side kind of mimic and uh, mirror some of the changes that we've seen with the clubs be two clubs that um, actually will not be in the Southeast this next year are Knoxville. And since I've recorded our last podcast, the schedule for the South Keys came out. And it actually turns out the New Orleans Jesters aren't going to be around. Now, Knoxville apparently is just, they're focusing on their youth program. They did not really have the facilities to um, handle a lot of what some of the other clubs were replicating. You put them next to like Fort Finley and it, it was just day and night. It certainly wasn't Memorial. It wasn't even a high school. So I, I kind of think that's probably a very good decision for Knoxville and it doesn't really lower the competitiveness or um, image that the Southeast had kind of curated. Now, New Orleans leaving, I'm pretty disappointed in this. I know we spoke about how the Asheville to New Orleans trip is actually the longest in the country in terms of NPSL travel. So no one's going to miss going down there. They're going to save a boatload of money coming up. And it sounds from everything that we've seen, there was a press release that came out that got quickly taken back down, but they basically earmarked their ambitions of wanting to go pro. Um, their manager, Farrell, he's the chairman of the NPSL, so I don't 
think there's a lot of um, possibility of maybe them going NISA or USL. But it, for this year, it's going to be a little disappointing not to see them. But I really, really do predict big things for them in 20, uh, 2020. Any thoughts on either one of them? Yeah, what I'm confused about from the Jester standpoint is they have a very wealthy owner. I, I got into a little bit of a Twitter discussion with um, some people the other day when this was announced. And if you're going to go MPSL Pro, why not play the MPSL season with Chattanooga and Detroit? And some of the West Coast teams are doing also. Because it's not going to affect scheduling. You still get to retain players. You get to get ready for the upcoming season. And your fan base isn't wondering what the heck you're going to do. I, I don't get that standpoint. That's one of the reasons I'm thinking NISA. I don't know. Uh, also, to go along with their kind of timetable that it looks like they're presenting in their and their quick PR um, release, along with NISA starting in the fall of 2019. That's what's leading me in that direction. Then again, I think MPSL Pro is the smart choice. I just don't love what NISA is doing. Um, last year, when the uh, South Carolina team that has changed their name 17 different times left the conference, I thought that was a win for the conference. It bettered the image. That when Emerald Force left, that bettered the image of the conference. When Greenville came, that was a plus for the conference. Um, I do think the Jester's leaving really hurts because the conference is one of the smaller uh, conferences now, and that hurts like how many teams are going to go to the playoffs, what's the playoffs going to look like, format. There's only 10 games, five home games for each team. Mm-hmm. Um, that side, I'm not very excited about the Jester's leaving this season. Uh, in the long run, it's probably a smart choice. I wish they could have joined a conference that's more regionally focused for them so they can create rivalries and it's less expensive. Um, but very excited to see the future. They they have a lot of potential to do good things. I think part of what they're trying to deal with down there is finding a new stadium. It sounds like Pan American still obviously wouldn't mind keeping them there. But with those football lines down it's kind of capped off on capacity and it sounds like they're possibly trying to work with the state with the minor league baseball team that's leaving that area so maybe that's something they're pursuing and they need to figure that out before they can go deep dive on scheduling and knowing exactly what they can and can't do um yeah, do that's a good point and the weird thing about the jesters is their fan base is inconsistent like one game you'll have 600 people and the next game, you'll have 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. And for no reason whatsoever. It's not depending on winning or losses or who you're playing. It's just random spikes in attendance. And they market themselves very well. They're broadcasted on local radio. Um, their home and away matches. Uh, and then their highlights are, are on local TV. So from a marketing standpoint, everyone knows they're there. It's just inconsistent and, and the fans showing up, which is kind of strange to me. But they have... They have a potential to be a very highly attended team. And if they get their stadium worked out, I think they'll be doing some really cool things down there. That's absolutely a pro market. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, there's some of these markets that I am a little concerned about, especially going to NPSL Pro, the Founders Cup, Milwaukee. I don't know what to expect from them. New Orleans? New Orleans is a pro market. They They need to sort themselves out, but they're a pro market. So I expect big things out of them. Two other clubs that um, kind of are going in opposite directions um, but are still here are Atlanta SC and Chattanooga. Um, Atlanta SC obviously is the former Silverbacks. 
and they have moved north to Alpharetta. And I'm excited to hear uh, you explain a little bit about what you know about that and um, just because they're closer to you in proximity. And then Chattanooga obviously is not going anywhere, at least this season. They're in our regular Southeast Conference, uh, home and away games against them. And then in the fall, they enter into the Founders' Cup. They have made no announcements whatsoever going into next year, however, about participation in the... I've loosely called heard this called NPSL Classic, which I think just for sake of ease, that's what I'm going to continue to call it throughout this conversation. So we know that we're talking about NPSL Pro and NPSL Classic, that summer kind of uh, reserve experience potentially for them. They have not announced one way or the other if they will be participating in that because if they do go into NPSL Pro and they have a full season, they will have a pro team playing at Finley, I would assume 24 games, so 12 home games potentially. Um, I think they also said they want to uh, look into bringing a women's team back. So that might be something else that they're looking into with Finley. And I don't know if they have a women's team and the pro team, if they're going to have enough dates to actually have a summer team too. But first, Atlanta, uh, what, what, what have you been hearing about them and their move up north to Alpharetta? How's that being received where you guys are? Yeah, so first of all, if you go back a few years, the Silverbacks have always had money issues back to their NASL days. Every year at the end of the season, it wasn't how are we going to grow, how are we going to get better as a team and as an organization. It was how are we going to keep the lights on? (laughs) Are we going to come back next year? Those were the questions that were needed to answer. And it got to the point where a few years ago, they didn't even own their name. They were renting their stadium and they were renting their name, the Atlanta Silverbacks, from former owner. Mm-hmm. And so it got to the point where it didn't make any sense financially. They weren't Their name recognition was becoming poor representation of the team, not the only thing keeping them afloat anymore, um, thanks to some of their issues with supporters and just the cleanliness of the stadium and the upkeep and everything that uh, they moved north. They're playing in a high school. Um, you know, on the NPSL website, it says one name, but this, the team is saying that's not confirmed yet. We're waiting for confirmation if we can play there. My problem with them moving that far north is, number one, if you're in Atlanta, getting an hour, uh, hour north from the south side on a Friday, a Saturday, <laughs> is a pain. I don't know if you if you oh, guys yeah, are I'm, familiar I'm with the only traffic, familiar. but yeah, you're gonna have to leave at like two in the afternoon. That's a pain. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know. Traveling anywhere consistently, like people will go maybe one game a year to the Gwinnett Braves. Now the Gwinnett Stripers in in Lawrenceville. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're on the south side, they might go to one game for the Atlanta Braves, Atlanta Falcons, trying to get a supporters group that is already on the south side of Atlanta to travel all the way to Alpharetta is a little bit of an ask. Also, the branding was not well received. You know, um, supporters groups are going to have no shortage of jokes when it comes (laughs) to their logo looking like a a peach emoji. Um, There's unlimited amount of jokes that come from that. I don't know what's easier, the jokes that come from what happened yesterday in Jupiter, Florida, or the Atlanta SC logo. I mean, (laughs) jokes literally write themselves. And it was a little more well-received than I thought it would be. Um, 
from a, a few of their diehard supporters I, I thought would completely abandon the team and they didn't uh, so I, I think they're gonna they're gonna probably be the lowest in the totem pole when it comes to attendance I'm not sure because the cool thing about the Silverbacks name was it was recognized as an NESL team and you know this used to be the top tier of American soccer NESL this is the Atlanta Silverbacks they used to play here and, and that drew names from you know, Africa, and they're bringing in top talent from Africa year after year. If your name's not the Atlanta Silverbacks anymore, it's hard to recruit. It's really hard to recruit. And I don't know. I don't love the move. I, I think this is a team that won't be here consistently in the next two, three years um, to compete against, but we'll see. Um, hopefully things turn out a little bit better than I'm, than I'm predicting, though. So do you think that's going to reflect on the pitch? I, I really do. Um, first of all, their captain, Aaron Walker, we talked about this. He's at Greenville Triumph, so you lose him. And then Sharif Suma, who had, uh, a, I, th- I believe he had a major heart attack last year, and he might not be able to play again. Um, and he's of age of 32 already. You lose him, and then Kekka's gone. He's playing in Europe, I believe. Mm-hmm. That was their... That was their star power right there, their goal scorer. And then after that, if you can't recruit from overseas and they're bringing in players because of the name, I, I think I think you lose a lot of that. What about Chattanooga? Had, and, and this is going to eventually dovetail until something we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, what do you think about their move, about the fan shares that they introduced, and possibly even a little bit about their neighbors that moved in next door to them? Yeah, so Chattanooga, I believe they're at what five hundred and fifteen thousand dollars raised so far, about half of their goal, mm-hmm. and a few thousand um, people bought in to get to that mark. I thought that was very impressive. That was a really good move for the team. Um, I think that's a good marketing strategy that really kept them above another step above the Red Wolves, the new USL League One team that moved in. That kept their head their head above them in the in the race for who's going to draw the most attendance. You know who's going to be who's going to be the bigger club in the Chattanooga area. That really helped them. That was a great move. Uh, applause to the ownership group. That was very very smart. Love the way they're marketing there. On the pitch, what they're going to look like this year, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know if Bill Walton's going to be coaching this team. I don't know what their players are going to look like. I don't know if you're going to have guys playing in here and then signing MPSL pro contracts. I'm not sure how this is going to look for their MPSL classic squad. It's a shot in the dark for me of what they're going to look like on the pitch. They're still going to have great attendance numbers. Um, When you look at the Red Wolves, they had a scrimmage against Atlanta United 2 USL championship side at, at their high school they're playing at. And they had about 400, 500, 600 fans maximum there for their first scrimmage, which is a little bit better than I would have anticipated. It was a little bit rainy in Chattanooga today. Um, that's decent numbers. I don't think the Red Wolves get over a thousand in any match for this season. Really? Just you, the amount think- of. So my problem with what the Red Wolves are doing is that they're coming in. They tried to steal Fort Finley away. They stole one of the major uh, front office people from Chattanooga FC, uh, just the, the fans are really going at each other. And 
it's it's completely different scene than what you're seeing in Greenville. Greenville is they want to work together, two teams, one city kind of thing. We're going to support you. You're going to support us. Chattanooga, it's we want to get you in the Open Cup because we want to kick your tail <laughs> and we want no part of you here. Um, you're not welcome. And when Chattanooga won the Fort Finley battle, when they won the ownership battle, keeping fans' money where their mouth is, I thought that said a lot. I, I think Chattanooga is going to be the bigger club. I think they're going to overrun them. And then Chattanooga stole Gregory Hartley, who was the heart and soul of Chattanooga FC's playoff run when they went to the championship, when they when they got 30000 for one game, that big season for Chattanooga FC. Mm-hmm. Gregory Hartley went to England for two years. He was, hey, if Chattanooga ever goes pro, I'm coming back. Chattanooga went pro, MPSL Founders Cup. But where does he sign? He signs for the Chattanooga Red Wolves. That was their first signing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that was that was the first blood drawn in, in the battle between the Red Wolves and Chattanooga FC. Yeah, I think I agree with some of that. I, I, I don't necessarily know if they stole Sean McDaniels as much as he willfully went out that door after. Yeah. There's a story to be written one day about the lower league soccer scene in America and this is a chapter unto itself i would love a 30 for 30 <laughs> on chattanooga fc yes exactly um and, and especially if this portends in the future as well as i think it will and i think we could look back in 30 years and really see i mean we make jokes about it now this being ground zero but it truly truly could be but I, I I think Sean left willfully. I think he knew what he was doing. I think he saw an opportunity. I The goalkeeper signing absolutely baffles me. I don't know if people are just completely misreading, thinking that the fans would be extremely accepting of this situation and thinking that they can coexist and be co-symbiotic or... I don't know what they're expecting, but none of that's come to fruition. They are at each other's throat. I do think, if anything, this really does help solidify a lot of what CFC is doing. I think these people who now have an investment, literally and figuratively, in the club itself, I think they now are going to be driven a little bit more to bring more people out to games. Um, Hey, what are you doing Saturday night? Come with me to the club that I own part of. Um, Come tailgate with me. Here's an extra shirt. I think merch numbers jump. Last year, I think they averaged... 3,300 per game. I would not be shocked if they averaged over 4,000 for the five home games in the classic season and then going into the Founders Cup, potentially even more than that. The high school that they're at, uh, Chattanooga Catholic, the Red Wolves, is apparently in the quote-unquote suburbs. It's just a little bit south of Finley. I don't know what to expect. They they have put up some temporary seating. Um, it doesn't sound like there's going to be alcohol available. I don't think they've put a single right foot in yet um, all the way from the way they announced things to the way that the news got out about Sean before they even announced truly I, I think they're branding I I'm sorry but I think their their crest is one of the worst I've ever seen I don't understand what they're doing even the name Red Wolves doesn't make a whole lot of sense since there's like 14 of them at a conservatory on the edge of town they're at the high school, no alcohol. I don't know where their fans are coming from. It sounds like it's some disillusioned CFC fans that were tired of waiting on them to go pro, which I think is weird unto itself. That said, though, I, they 
seem to be putting together a really good roster. <laughs> yeah. I think they might be the I favorites really to win. I really think Tormenta uh, FC and Chattanooga Red Wolves are going to run away with League One this year. And yeah. a really weird thing that I that I just thought of was last year when I was doing the whole soccer roundtable thing, I had a DM discussion with Gregory Hartley. Mm-hmm. And this was this was in the off season before the 2018 NPSL season. And he, and he was like, Hey, I have an announcement. I'm coming back at Chattanooga. I'm signing a professional contract. This is when the whole NISA thing was happening. He was going to sign a contract for the Chattanooga NISA side. That was going to be their first signing. He told me that I, I have that in my DMS. I'll, I'll go through that and I'll probably publish that. Uh, maybe I'm going to have to, Think about that. Maybe uh, react a few things, but <laughs> I might publish that on Twitter later today when this podcast comes out. But we have that conversation. He was ready to go Nista with Chattanooga FC, mm-hmm. and then he signed with Red Wolves. That's a really weird switch. That's that, that a is, really I'm weird that's flip. The relationship with Sean, maybe, I, because I don't understand yeah. why that, that, that has to be it. I mean, yeah. Um, but I also that's amazing. Like that's. Exactly. People who say CFC did not have pro ambitions just literally don't know what they're talking about. There was a push to go pro, and everybody on that board wanted to go pro. They did not want to go USL. USL has a business model that not everybody agrees with. It is a closed sandbox that has a very high entry fee. It's just not for everybody. You, it, it's not like MLS where you have to give up your rights and you have you, you you're a single entity. You're an outlet, not a franchise, et cetera, et cetera. It's not MLS, but it's MLL light. Maybe um, they've got your intellectual property for two right two years after you leave USL. Doesn't mean they own it, but they're they're leasing it. Nisa was an option. NPSL Pro is obviously an option. They they wanted to go pro. They just wanted to go pro on their terms. It's very similar to what Detroit's doing. That's why when people kind of wonder why Detroit and Chattanooga kind of have each other's backs and um, Detroit fans go after Red Wolves fans and the club right now a lot, it because they're brothers in arms. And if you pick on one, you're kind of picking on the other. They're doing things two separate ways, but kind of under the same umbrella. So those are clubs that have changed in the Southeast. Um, let's kind of talk about two that have stayed the same, though. Um, we'll start with Greenville. Um, Greenville just announced since the last podcast I did, they have left Furman um, and is confirmed, and they've moved to, I believe I'm pronouncing this cr- uh, correctly, Serene Stadium. Um, it's apparently in downtown. Greenville, uh, a local high schools using it. It used to be used by Furman for, I think, their football and soccer club back in the day. It looks gorgeous. It's um, it's big. I think it seats 5,000, 7,000, something like that. It The pitch itself, though, is apparently very thin. It's not, it's not wide. I believe it's only like 50-something yards in, side to side. So the parking's apparently an issue. It's on the Swamp Rabbit Trail. Fans are really having a mixed reaction to it. What are your thoughts on Greenville going into this year? So I'm not familiar with Greenville, and so I don't know where it's located and what that means location-wise. So I'm not going to comment on that part. But I will say, whenever someone has asked a question about alcohol, whether it's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it has not been replied to. Mm-hmm. And 
and every other comment has been replied to. If it's a yay, can't wait Glad for you this. Noticed that too. You know, go green and gold. Yay! Exclamation <laughs> point. Smiley face. Alcohol hasn't been answered. People are asking about parking, asking about the pitch. Those questions are answered. Alcohol has not been answered. So this is where a this is not this is not owned by a high school, but a high school does play there. And some really, really weird rules go into effect because of that. Mm-hmm. It is government-owned. I know um, other teams, not going to name names, but other teams that play at high schools that are owned by – the stadium is owned by the government. Very similar situation of what Greenville is going to. It's about a year process. They can get the alcohol permit for special occasions. They have to have the schedule, list the games. It's going to take a while. So if alcohol is going to be sold – it's probably going to be a last-minute thing before we go to an announcement. We're probably not going to know until the season starts. Mm-hmm. It may, midway through, they may change it. Um, that's my biggest worry because alcohol brings in money. It does. I've heard everything you just said is exactly what I've heard. But I have heard that there is a better-than-not chance of it happening. Lots of uh, hoops they have to jump through, but apparently this move had been, I guess, in the works long enough that maybe a little bit of that legwork had already been completed. Um, but making a preemptive announcement, maybe not in their best option. I'm I will to see say what in this year, in this offseason, I, I think last year was a year of a lot of new teams in NPSL across the board. This year, not as much, but a lot of teams are making moves. And I, I think teams that maybe not going pro this year makes sense for them but a step they can do is they can sell alcohol i know a lot of teams that are ready to make that announcement saying hey we're selling alcohol this year something new something different brings more fans in gets more money Mm -hmm. um i think we're going to see a lot of those announcements coming in in the next month and, and until the season starts i think so too i think so too so they did lose malcolm frego they lost uh a few of their other attacking players um, but I think one of their key to this season, the key to Greenville FC's season, is if they can retain Toby Sims. Um, so right now, Toby Sims is a he, he played last year. He was a standout defender, center back for them, really controlled what they were doing across the board. Uh, he was a freshman at Chuan University, and now he's a sophomore. He actually won the Conference Carolinas Men's Soccer Player of the Week in October. Um, as a sophomore, he's having a fantastic season in Conference Carolinas. If they get him back, I think he really can control the pace that Greenville wants to play at. Um, he he cleans up all of the mess that happens. Um, he's a very, very solid player. Um, he was an impact player in both of the games he played against Georgia Revolution last year. He really stood out on the pitch to me. I think if they can retain him, and I think they will, it's very likely. He's still playing college in Conference Carolina, and he wants to get his name out there a little bit more. I think it's a good summer option for him. I think he'll return to Greenville. The fans really liked him. Um, they need to get some pieces up top. They lost all their creativity in Malcolm Frago. They lost their striker and uh, Lawrence uh, Wikes or Wicks, um, I don't remember how to pronounce his name correctly, um, but if they can figure out their attack, I, I think they can uh, aim to be a mid-conference, a mid-table team in the Southeastern Conference. Georgia Revolution, tell me about them. 
Yeah, so last year um, was it was a big year. We had a new head coach, Coach Steyo. He's from Georgia Gwinnett, um, from, and he brought a lot of his players, and that really was the backbone of the team last year. And on Georgia um, Georgia Gwinnett College, he brought some international experience. Jack Gurr, uh, he's a right back. He really controlled everything that happened. The, entire season and then when we got to the playoffs he had to go back to England um, for a few months and he missed the playoffs I really do believe if Jack Gurr was there for the entire playoffs Georgia Revolution could have won the Southeastern Conference he's that big of impact player he's still playing for Georgia Gwinnett College um, Coach Steele is coming back this year and with with Coach Steele is going to come basically the entire back line um, and you're going to retain a lot of the midfield. We had a young, promising left winger who was 16 years old, and 17 at one point, Jamar Oakley. He should be coming back. He plays for Georgia Gwinnett as well. That's a lot of speed, a lot of creativity. We did lose Alex Harley, the best player, undeniably, on Georgia Evolution, and honestly, maybe even the Southeast with Tom Pierce from the Jesters and Elman of Four to argue with that as well. But... Alex Harley's playing for Las Vegas Lights, and then you lose your striker. So I believe if if George Revolution can get a top-tier striker um, to replace Isaac Promise, who played for the Nigerian national team for a little while, if they can replace him, they'll look very strong on the pitch. They're going to continue to play at Henry County High School. That's what I've been told. Um, it might change. Uh, I, I don't know because actually, so fun story, uh, in Henry County, Georgia, which is south of the airport in Atlanta, there are a crap ton of high schools, uh, like nine or ten, I think. I haven't counted in a while. I'll have to probably go and count. But the oldest one, Henry County High School, which is in our downtown square area, they're building a new high school called McDonough High School just down the street. And all in the high school is just transitioning to this new high school. And then the football stadium slash soccer stadium, which is in the perfect location. It's near the square. It's downtown Henry County. Beautiful area. Location is absolutely perfect. The county's talking about turning it into a greenhouse. So I've not been updated on where we're playing this year, but if Henry County High School doesn't work out, there are other high schools in the area. The location's not as ideal. Um, so Henry County is definitely the first choice. And then um, the after that, there, there are other decent choices to play at what was the big difference between 2017 and 2018 for you guys if i'm not mistaken in 2017 you didn't win a game three draws yeah, three points last I year you made the one game in two years until 2018 yeah, so um, so what was the difference because last year when we played you Asheville played you the first two games of the season first game one one second game one one and from what I saw, potentially that's who Asheville probably was closest to in terms of consistency and um, on-pitch performance. Obviously yeah. two draws. But even then, throughout the course of the season, the teams that we played very well, you guys played very well, and the teams that we kind of struggled against, you guys kind of struggled against. What, what was that jump from 17 to 18? Hands down, it was getting Coach Steo, and Coach Steo brought two things. He brought consistency, and he gave us a backbone for, for talent. So he brought his college, basically, his, his stars from his school, and he could recruit 
from a conference because they're not NCAA, they're GICA, or I'm sorry, I forget what the actual abbreviation is, but something like that. And uh, they're playing in a, a little bit different collegiate system. And so they have guys from all over the world playing there, a little bit older guys, a little bit different from NCAA. So uh, he was able to bring a lot of experience and run his system and then consistency. I saw in 2017, you would get guys. We got Cameron, um, I forget Cameron's last name, but he was the leading scorer for Duke. Uh, he played one game for Georgia Revolution. It was a friendly against the all-Army team, and they didn't play another game. Uh, you got all kinds of guys like that in 2017. You'd play one game and then never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't show up to practice, wouldn't anything. And so we have a consistent coach who is making his players consistently come to practice, consistently show up. Um, that was a big thing. And, and just having that coach there really opened up recruiting. We're, we're able to get a lot of guys that play professional soccer and are um, up in years a little bit, just kind of a last um, opportunity to play at a pretty high level. Um, um, hands down, Coach Steo is, is why Georgia Evolution was better in 2018 and will be better in 2019. So you're expecting big things for him? I'm expecting to compete for a title. I really think we bring the most back. Um, Georgia Evolution and Asheville, I, I think, are the front runners for the conference this year of retaining talent and retaining players in 2018. So before we move on, is do you have anything you want to ask me about Asheville? Anything I can um, spread the good word about? Yeah, so when I think of Asheville, I think of a of an awesome setup. You have a great location, your your stadium set up over the minor league baseball stadium, over the city. You know, you have a great supporter section, great uh, relationship with High Wire Brewery. But one of the most impressive things about Asheville is you have the same atmosphere and the same attendance numbers for the women's game and the men's game. How does Asheville go about doing that? Really, I think the two things that lead into that, thank you so much for asking that because I, I, so often so many of these interviews skew towards the men that we absolutely are missing out on the women and because I, I really think there's a decent chance the women win it all this year, like across the country. They're making moves. But I think it really started from literally the genesis of the women's club. The fact that... When Ryan, Jimmy, Allen, Jordan, and and the guys started the men's club, they really tapped into something in Nashville in terms of social equity and making sure that everybody had a seat at the table and knowing that soccer is one of those few sports that truly does act as a community binder. It, it cuts across demographics, it cuts across races, it cuts across ages. Of course, every sport wants to claim they do that, but there's a reason soccer is the world's most popular sport. So when the women's ownership group came in, and they are just all one ownership group, but when they approached, and, and I actually truly don't know who approached who, but the women came in with the pedigree that the men were missing. The, the men were six friends from Marion, North Carolina, who loved soccer and saw an opportunity. But in terms of the actual sport, beyond maybe some high school playing and, and being parts of different supporters group, they, they were just starting from the ground up. Um, between Lydia, Megan, and Stacy, you're talking about a U.S. women's national player 
I mean, she literally started in the first women's national game ever in Italy, um, won a national championship with UNC Chapel Hill. Lydia played professionally, Megan played professionally, and overseas. So they weren't just coming to the table and saying, hey, let's be part of this. They were saying, learn from us. And I think the men recognized that, and I think they appreciated sitting under their learning tree. So it became this almost like professionalism mixed with pedigree, and that's the way they brought it out there. Uh, there's it, it, The closest comparison I think we can make in terms of like, uh, settling it out to see like why Asheville succeeded and why Chattanooga didn't. From everything I understand, the Chattanooga women actually ended up going to the Red Wolves this past summer. Um, Gretchen, who was their owner and GM, made that decision kind of because apparently CFC's men did not always treat the women as equals um, to the point where they didn't even share sponsors. And sometimes there was a battle with those sponsors. That is not happening in Asheville. In Asheville, it's all equal, and and to and to that point, um, the Southeast Conference in the NPSL schedule came out this week. Asheville is the only club that has not made an official announcement yet, because they're waiting on the WPSL schedule, because they're releasing their club schedule. The men are no better than the women; they're no less. The women are no better; they're no less. It is truly one club, and everything they do. Um, is intertwined with each other. The men work the women's game. The women work the men's games. Um, they're always accessible. The owners are accessible. I, I truly think part of it is just the presentation of it. And it's not, this is the men and this is the women. So often I hear people say, oh, I'm going to the Asheville City game. And they don't even know who's playing. They don't know if it's the men. They don't know if it's the women. And they don't know the opponent. I think that's actually more of an opportunity for growth because I do think you need to know those things to know the bigger picture. But for your second year and for the first year of the women, I think that's extremely impressive that they're seeing it more as just a cultural event and something that's really bringing the city together as opposed to, oh, I don't want to go to that because it's the women. I want to wait for Saturday because it's the men. Yeah, that is that is really cool. I, I like how you pointed out that they're waiting for the schedule release just to show how unison the two teams are. And um, that's a really cool opportunity. I know uh, the Atlanta Silverbacks used to have a women's team, and it was kind of the same thing you were saying with Chattanooga, just kind of fighting and pushing one kind of to the side where, where you guys are really working together, and, and that's awesome. I really admire what Asheville is doing with that. Um, I, I really hope once, once we can get a foothold in the community with George Revolution and get a – get a solid fan base that we can also uh, open a women's team and follow in you guys' footsteps of what you're doing in, on the women's game. Uh, we, we would welcome it. And from what I understand, you guys did start a local women's team this past off season. Yeah, so the really cool thing about the state of Georgia is we have one of the best adult men's uh, recreational professional um, pro-rel um, uh, recreational leagues mm -hmm. in the ADASL and, and the women's side also we have a fantastic lead and uh, the women's team just started playing this year they're kind of trying to figure it out and they're playing some very tough opponents I mean girls that played professional soccer played in the NWSL played for Duke North Carolina you know, the highest level of soccer and it, they're, they're getting their feet wet and this year was a rough year 
when it comes to to results but I really think uh, this was also an awesome opportunity to, to kind of get things going um, and to jumpstart uh, a solid club on, on the women's side. That's awesome. I wish you guys all the luck with that. I don't think there could be a better year, too, to really capitalize on this. Obviously, the NWSL is making leaps and bounds. Um, they just introduced the Players Association. I think things are going to get better with the Sky Blue and that ownership situation. And the Women's World Cup this year is one of those seminal events. Every time there's a World Cup, it captures the world's attention. And if the and and if in the past when the men did well, you could see significant spikes in attendance in the lower leagues. You could see significant spikes in interest in the sport across the country. The same we've seen with the women in the World Cup these last few years. And this is one of those I think opportunities that as especially clubs who have dual branded clubs with men and women, they can truly, truly kind of manifest that momentum and build on it. Um, I know Asheville, at least I hope Asheville, I'm trying to decipher when the women's games are going to be. The minor league baseball team here takes priority in terms of uh, scheduling. So if you just look at their schedule and then you see what the men are playing at home, you can almost kind of pick and choose and figure out when the women are going to play. So I have a good idea. And it looks like the women are going to play on certain days that theoretically the U.S. women's national team will play. I mean, goodness gracious, what an incredible opportunity to dovetail marketing and branding and, and say, hey, come watch a you know U.S. women's national game down at High Wire, and then we're all going to go up to the stadium and watch our women play. Yeah, no doubt. This is an awesome opportunity for Asheville. Quick clarification question for people who are not from Asheville. Um, you're talking about the minor league baseball team, the Asheville Tourist, and uh, earlier I was saying how – how the soccer stadium sits above it mm -hmm. um from part from a uh, parking perspective and scheduling like you're talking about how does the minor league baseball team schedule affect Asheville city's schedule they get priority um i i don't understand it the city owns both properties so the city owns mccormick the baseball field and memorial stadium the the soccer pitch for i mean it's multi-purpose but we'll call it a soccer pitch so the baseball schedule obviously comes out in, oh, goodness gracious, October, November. I mean, it, it's basically announced right after the actual season ends, possibly before the World Series even ends. So as soon as those dates come out, the city basically blacks out those dates for the soccer team. I don't really understand it because uh, Memorial is used at times during baseball games, such as opportunities like the Beer City Cup. You were just talking about your adult league down there. So Beer City is a seven-on-seven, three-day um, tournament. It's the largest amateur seven-on-seven -seven tournament in the country. We even get teams from England and France. It, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. But the finals are held at Memorial, and it's always on Labor Day. And this past year, the Beer City was held at the same time as the there was a baseball game going on. So I don't quite understand what the conflict is there with Asheville City. Um, maybe the, the, the announcing going on over top of each other, I could see that be an issue. The, the parking's the same. Now, when I say there's no parking, I literally mean there's no parking for either one of these games. Memorial, if I had to guess, maybe has 
200 spots, maybe. And that's kind of crawling down the hill um, when obviously the baseball game's happening. Those 200 spots are eligible for those baseball. And then the baseball uh, field itself has, I think, an extra like 50 or so. That's like VIP parking. Other than those 250 spots, there, there's no parking deck. There's no parking lot. There's there's a dirt lot that the soccer team can use to the other side of Memorial I don't necessarily know that I've ever seen anybody use that for baseball. I think employees might use it, players, employees, um, team members, uh, team staff, things of that nature for the baseball games. But the soccer team is allowed to use that. Other than that, we use downtown. Um, you, you park next to a brewery. You park in a parking deck downtown. You go to a brewery. I think it's part of what leads to the problem of Asheville City and specifically the South Slope Blues, not being able to figure out how to get a tailgating or a central location together before games. I'm very envious of what Chattanooga has with Chattanooga Brewing and with what Detroit has in terms of a concentrated effort um, for tailgating, and then they march into the stadium. (laughs) Memorial is up a very sharp hill that will take your breath away, but I still think it would be phenomenal to have that presence I just don't think it's ever going to happen because you're never going to be able to get enough people, even even 50 people, to choose the same brewery, <laughs> which is yeah. the most ridiculous thing that's ever come out of my mouth. But everybody has their favorite ones. Some people like Green Man. Some people like Burial. Some people like Arisco. Some people like High Wire. Some people... It's death by option, truly. So you end up splintering the fan base and everybody just kind of trickles in up onto themselves. Yeah. So a question I know from people that are not in Asheville, we've heard uh, if you ever go to Asheville, they have the different breweries have the little trolleys or uh, where they want to make you think you're pedaling, but you're not um, the mobile mobile. The, uh, Beer, whatever they're, you want to call them. Pubsicles. <laughs> there, there you go, pubsicles. We've heard rumors that the supporters groups take those to the stadium. Is that accurate? I don't know that I've ever seen one of those um, drop people off as a uh, drunken Uber, though. That that might be something that somebody needs to look into because that could potentially be a moneymaker. And I guarantee you, after a couple beers at Green Man, you could convince somebody to pay $5 to uh, drive you up to the stadium. Um. <laughs> I think that would be a fun tradition, personally. Like uh, I know Chattanooga has the pavilion they tailgate at and then march right over, and that's fun and all. And I know Detroit City marches through a neighborhood and people line the streets to watch the march through. I think Asheville being Asheville and being, you know, so many breweries, if you guys take pub signals to the games, that would be fun. I think that would be something different, and that would be very Asheville. I'll I'll certainly look into that. So, Riley, before I let you go, I want to touch base. Um, the, The original way that you and I actually connected was back in December, you, me, Steve Bailey, and somebody else were having a debate on Twitter about um, MLS and and specifically Atlanta United. I think they had just basically won their championship, and we were kind of talking about Atlanta being a soccer town. And kind of across the board, everybody was saying, yes, soccer is is a soccer town, or Atlanta is a soccer town. But there was this divergence in opinion in terms of saying, like, is MLS actually good for Atlanta to hang their hat on? Now that we've, you know, we're about two months away from that championship win, 
do you still feel like Atlanta's kind of in the afterglow of that championship? And and do you actually think that the MLS model, the single entity outlet model, um, is the path forward for soccer in this country? Yeah, so I, I think America and the way our sports are run, our business are run, are so different than England and the rest of the world that we have to run it the American way. And is it Lance United good for the Atlanta soccer community? I say 100% undeniably. So I'm listening to Sports Talk Radio today. And what's the, what are they talking about? They're talking about, hey, Thursday, Atlanta United lost 3-1 to Edredonado in Costa Rica. And our broadcasters from 99 the game flew down to Costa Rica, covered the match. That's something that never happens. In, the, in most MLS cities, Portland and Seattle included, their radio broadcasters do not travel to away games. We travel out of the country, and sports talk radio is talking all day about Atlanta United. I think what you're saying about how Asheville women's team is treated just like the men's team, the thing that made Atlanta United successful and the reason why this is a soccer town is because Atlanta United is treated on Sports Talk Radio. We're treated on you know, the news. We're treated by everyone. Not like a niche sport. Not like, hey, we're going to have our 30-minute soccer ESPN FC mm-hmm. segments. No. We're going to talk about Atlanta United like we talk about the Braves, like we talk about the Hawks, like we talk about the Falcons. They're going to be intertwined into our discussion. We're not going to have guys talking about football, baseball, and basketball, and then one guy talks about soccer. We're going to have our host talk about everything. Going down Atlanta today, I drove through Atlanta, and uh, my dad, who's not a soccer advocate, mentioned, you know how many license plates I've seen with Atlanta and logo on them? How many cars I've seen with Atlanta's logo on them? Atlanta United has traveled and has created a an amazing fan base and amount of fans that knew nothing about soccer, but now are indulged into it. And you can't ignore it. It's everywhere. Atlanta United is everywhere, and they've really they've really created a soccer community from what was a small but vital. Uh, international soccer community, and then you had puddles of the youth um, soccer community and brought it all at one and kind of united it and then brought a lot of new fans into the game. And I, we really saw a spark in attendance for George Revolution because of Atlanta United and interest on Twitter and, and everywhere. And I think all aspects of the game have really, really benefited from it. And another cool thing I saw was a local high school team um, in my area, uh, kids, you know, were wanting to play track during the spring season, everything. We had more players trying out for soccer than any other sport in the spring this year. Uh, attendance numbers have tripled and quadrupled for high school soccer events. I mean, across the board, I think Atlanta United has really, really increased the entrance and multiplied the entrance uh, 10 times fold in the soccer community. Do you think part of that has to do with the presentation of it in terms of blank owning the team and treating it not as lesser than the Falcons, but as a co oh, 100%. basically, I, of the I dome think as opposed to the like way, what crafted with the revolution? Yeah, I think definitely what you said was, was 100% correct. The way Arthur Blank treated the team, 
the way Mercedes-Benz treats the team, the way the Sports Talk Radio treats the team, if it wasn't for that, Lance London would not be what it is today. Because before then, three years ago, when Mercedes-Benz Stadium was, igno- was announced, everyone's thought process was, hey, the soccer team's going to be dirt cheap. No one's going to go to a soccer game in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. If you want to look at the stadium, I'm not going to pay 300 bucks to do a Falcons game. I'm, I'm going to buy a cheap uh, soccer ticket and go for a half, look at the stadium, and leave. You know, That, that was the plan for, for a lot of people. And so the way Arthur Blank has treated this team has been undeniably successful. And he really has set the precedence for what owners should be doing. And um, yeah, owners like Robert Kraft, who just bought an MLS team because it's one more thing to monopolize the sports market in Boston, I think that way and that model has gone to the wayside. And uh, owners like Arthur Blank, who put the team equally with with uh you know the, the major sports basketball baseball football and have the ambitions to put it there and aren't afraid i, I think that that's what mls is coming to i think it's a really growing and soccer is really growing in uh, the united states now atlanta kind of has a reputation of course i i've never gotten wrapped up in the carolina atlanta dynamic i'm, I'm not a fan of most Carolina teams, and I'm not a fan of Atlanta teams, so I'm, I'm kind of a neutral. I'm Switzerland in this situation. But Atlanta does certainly have a reputation as not being a dedicated fan base in terms of some of their sports. Um, I'm most familiar with the Braves because I'm a pretty big baseball fan, and so I've, you know, I, I, all the way back to Fulton County Stadium, several games down there. I loved, loved Turner Stadium. Um, that place will always have a spot in my heart. Um, but one of the things that Atlanta certainly is known for is kind of being bandwagonish. Um, when the Braves do well, they have fans. When the Falcons do well, they have fans. But even the Falcons this past year in their brand new stadium, you saw as the season kind of wore on and they started to suffer defeat after defeat, you know, start a third quarter, game's not going well for them, come back from halftime, and the stadium is only half filled. How do you think Atlanta's going to handle when the um, Atlanta United aren't winning championships? And do you think that's a trickle-down effect of you're mentioning the revolution seeing an uptick in interest as Atlanta United does well? Do you think the vice versa works too? And do you think as Atlanta United doesn't do well or things are um, just they're suffering and there's challenges that that affects the lower leagues also? Yeah, so first of all, I think the difference between Atlanta United is everyone has an NFL team. If you grew up in Baltimore, you're a Ravens fan. You know, if you grew up in L.A., you're a Lakers fan. If you're a young kid and the Hawks are terrible, but you're on Snapchat and LeBron James is on your feed 25 times a day, you're going to become a LeBron James Lakers fan. You don't have a rooted Atlanta team. I think Atlanta United people are coming here, and they don't have an American soccer team. If they have, an, if they're a diehard fan, they and they have a Liverpool or Manchester United or Real Madrid, that's different. They don't have an MLS team, and so when Atlanta United came, it brought people the the transplants from Detroit, the transplants from Pennsylvania, the people coming in from different countries. It brought them together, and this is our team, you know. You don't see many people in Atlanta wearing a Seattle Sounders kit. But you walk into Walmart, and I guarantee you, you'll see someone wearing a Red Sox uniform. You know, 
I think the difference is that businesses buy out major seats in all of the arenas and stadiums in Atlanta when the teams are doing bad because there isn't that large amount of fans. There are bandwagonish because there's so many options and they have so many teams flying in their face. But with Atlanta United, that's the only team you've heard about ever in MLS soccer, you know, in the soccer community. And there's no other team to run to. It's just Atlanta United. And I think they're going to be successful in attendance numbers. Of course, it's going to drop off a little bit. They're not going to get 73,000 a match if they're in 10th place. But they're still going to get like 40, 50, 60. Our season ticket um, base is 40,000 strong. That is one of the largest in any sport in America. 40,000 strong season ticket base. That's phenomenal. I really think that Atlanta United has something different because no one else had a team before they came. I think that makes sense. I I still it frustrates me a lot, and I I'm, I won't turn this into a soapbox rant. It it still very much frustrates me that MLS is turning into a millionaires division, a millionaires tier in terms of it not happening organically and the professional league standards that the Federation has created to allow entry into that tier is so limited and so thin and narrow in terms of scope. I think the very, very unique thing about soccer is it is very, very community based. You, you don't see, I, I think the, what is it called? The AAF, the new minor league football team or league that just started with the Ebersol. I think this is a really good example of how most minor league sports don't work in America in terms of widespread appeal, but soccer yeah. does. And, and I'm yeah. convinced that if there was a way for clubs to grow organically and move up through the ranks, you would eventually end. I truly do believe that Chattanooga has sporting merit and ambition that they could turn into a sort of like Leicester situation and move up and potentially win the MLS one day one day in an ideal situation, but we're never going to see that. And I find that a little disappointing. Yeah, I think you bring up a fantastic point. And where if you look at minor league baseball, you're not seeing in top tier AAA minor league baseball, the Iron Pigs, you're not seeing them average 8,000 people a game like Detroit does. Mm -hmm. You don't see them having a rampant fan base that is creating Twitter arguments while they're working <laughs> nine to five. You don't see that in any other sport. And in soccer, you really do have a fan base for your minor league teams where mm -hmm. you're, you're going to have a sellout when Tim Tebow is playing a three game series yep. in Arkansas. Yeah. You know, you're going to have when Mike Trout is on the disabled list and he comes back and he's rehabbing in Reno, Nevada. You're going to have a sellout. You're not having a sellout night in and night out on a Wednesday at 7.30 against a team from Greenville. You're not having a sellout in minor league baseball. But in soccer, you do. And you have a following. And you have fans who are buying you know, hundreds of gear and merchandise and $100 kits so they can get in to five games a season. You get that in soccer, and and you get chance, and and you get 
community. Like I, said, I think soccer is a beautiful thing for that aspect. And all levels have a following mm-hmm. consistently, and that's really cool. I do, and and you and I certainly aren't going to solve that on this podcast. But uh, Riley, I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your evening to chat with me. Um, I, you mentioned your roots up and your soccer roundtable kind of fell by the wayside. Sarah, you are welcome on this podcast anytime you want. Um, I'm extremely excited to keep up with you throughout the Southeast NPSL Classic season, and then maybe even going into Founders Cup if you'd like to chat with my dumbass. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, I'm really excited for what this season uh, has in store and uh, hopefully make it up to Asheville. That's a goal of mine for this summer. Uh, hoping for a really exciting, uh, exciting season. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Riley. We'll be in touch. All right. Thank you. I guess that's why they call us the blues. Time on our hands could be time spent with bruise. Drinking like tourists, yelling like drunkards, scoring some sunners. You've been listening to the You're Smarter Than Us podcast, a proud member of the Soccer and Sweet Tea Network. Check us out on social media at your underscore smarter or shoot us an email at you're smarter than us at gmail.com.